Well, good morning, Horizon. Do you like a good Western? I, I love a good Western. I think one of my favorite Westerns of all times is the movie Tombstone with Kirk Russell. How many of you have seen that? Oh, a number of you have. It, you know, Tombstone is really the story of Wyatt Earp uh, and his relationship, his friendship with Doc Holliday. And in the movie, as it begins, you learn that Wyatt reluctantly becomes sheriff or becomes um, uh, the marshal, the marshal of Tombstone. And then you become aware of the bad blood between the Earps and the Clantons. And then as the movie progresses, you're introduced to the cowboy outlaw gang. And then, of course, there's the final shootout at the OK Corral. Well, as the movie begins to wind down, you, you're coming to the end. I mean, after the adventure is over, after good has triumphed over, over evil, uh, you have Doc Holliday, who has been in pretty poor health throughout the movie. Uh, he's dying of tuberculosis in, in the sanitarium. And Wyatt has made it a practice to visit him on a regular basis. And so he shows up for his weekly game of five-card stud. Now, the movie is over, but there's one final scene, a deathbed scene. And it seems as if everything that's happened in the movie has now focused on this one small event. Watch the screen. Did you hear the question that Doc asked Wyatt? He said, Wyatt, what did you want in life? And Wyatt says, I just wanted to live a quiet life. To which Doc responds, Tis no such thing as normal life. There's just life. Now get on with it. You see, all Wyatt ever wanted to live was a quiet, normal life, his smaller story. I mean, all he ever desired was to live life with his wife and his brothers uh, farming a little plot of land. He never wanted to be the marshal of Tombstone. He resisted his entire life being drug up into the larger story of what's going on around him. And then on the deathbed, Doc Holliday helps Wyatt see that it's impossible to live your small little story. Sometimes life has got to be lived in light of a larger story. The story that has been going on around you the whole time. Now, I think that's exactly what's going on as we come to the close of the book of Genesis. I mean, technically, Jacob's life is over, but there's one final scene, a deathbed scene. In fact, everything from Genesis 47 through chapter 50 is devoted to Jacob's death and burial. Did you know there's no other place in the whole of Scripture where so much attention is focused on someone's death and burial that is except Jesus? I mean, the death of Abraham is covered in just two verses. The death of Isaac is mentioned in just one verse. And then we'll discover in the next chapter the death of Joseph it's summarized in just one verse. But here there are 73 verses dedicated to covering the death and burial of, of Jacob. Now, why is that? Well, that's what we want to explore this morning together. You see, for the past two weeks, we've really found ourselves eavesdropping in on the last moments of Jacob's life. 
I mean, it began in chapter 47 when Jacob called Joseph to meet with him and asked Joseph to put his hand under his father's thigh and swear to him that he would bury him in the land of Canaan, the land God promised his people. Now, I don't know about you, and I don't know about uh, Joseph, but I think I'd prefer putting my hand on the Bible than putting my hand under Jacob's old thigh. But that's the way they did it in those days. And then in chapter uh, 48, we find that Jacob calls Joseph and his two sons together, and Jacob ends up adopting Joseph's two sons, um, Manasseh and Ephraim. Adopts them as his own. And then we move into chapter 49 that we began last week, and we see that Jacob calls all the sons together around his bed, and he delivers a blessing that is appropriate for each one. Now, that brings up a question. I mean, what is the value of receiving a blessing? Why a blessing? Well, probably when you think of a blessing, when I think of a blessing, you think of a prayer that is uh, usually uttered before a meal. But what Jacob does here seems to be more like a pronouncement. It's a pronouncement from God, a pronouncement uh, from God about the future of his sons, which is really the future of the nation of Israel. That's the larger story that has been going on. This related to what God is doing in the world at this time. So what is the value of receiving a blessing from your father like Jacob gave his sons? Well, first of all, a blessing gives you an identity. I mean, it tells you who you are. It says to each son, you're part of something that's bigger than yourself, something God is doing in the world, and you have a significant role to play in what God's doing. Uh, but it not only gives you an identity, a blessing, receiving a blessing also reveals your destiny. It not only tells you where you're going, it lets you know how you'll know when you get there. It, it describes what your destiny looks like. So a blessing gives you identity, it reveals a destiny, but a blessing also tells you what you'll need along the way. What, what you'll need in order to fight for your destiny that's in line with your identity. And in chapter 49, I mean last week, uh, we, we saw that um, Jacob does not deliver these blessings to his sons uh, in the order you would think, according to age. They are delivered according to their family, their mothers. He starts with the first six boys of his first wife, Leah, and then there are the four sons of Jacob's two concubines. And then he concludes with the two sons of Jacob's second wife, Rachel. So they're probably grouped around his bed as he's dying according to family, not according to age. And last week we considered what was pronounced over the first four sons of Leah. And this week we're going to examine what he says over the remaining eight sons. Eight sons. So we got eight blessings we're going to cover in a short amount of time this morning. So I want to warn you, I'm going to move quickly. 
Uh, we're going to cover them all, and we'll cover them fast, and then I'm going to summarize, and it'll make sense at the end. So I want to encourage you to buckle your seatbelts as we look at these eight blessings. Let's first begin with Zebulun in verse 13. Notice what it says. Zebulun shall live by the haven of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships, and his border shall adjoin Sidon. Now, when Jacob says that Zebulun's family will live by the haven of the sea, he's not saying the descendants of, of Zebulun are going to have, you know, waterfront property. That's not what he's talking about here. He's basically saying they'll benefit from the commerce that's generated by the sea. In fact, history shows that when uh, the children of Israel began inhabiting the land, uh, you have uh, Zebulun here, and, he lo- and he's located along the trading route between the Sea of Galilee and the Mediterranean. Can you see what Jacob is saying? He's, he's saying, Zebulun, you're going to be positioned well. I mean, take advantage of the opportunity that's been laid before you. Don't let that slip by. And then we move to the son of Is- the son named Issachar. He's the final son of Leah. Notice what he says in verse 14. Uh, Issachar is a strong donkey lying down between two burdens. Now, calling somebody a donkey or an ass in Jacob's day was not an insult. In fact, a donkey was a valuable piece of farm equipment. It would be like looking at a farmer today and saying, you know, you remind me of a 620 horsepower John Deere R9 uh, equipped with uh, hydro uh, hydro cushion suspension, ATV transmission, uh, command arm, and generation four uh, command modules. Now that doesn't mean much to you, but that's a tractor, and you can imagine what that thing can do. I mean, can you see what Dad is saying to his son? I mean, he's looking at the son and he's telling him, son, look at your potential. I mean, you're strong and capable. You can accomplish anything you set your mind to. But Issachar, you're also lazy. That phrase, between two burdens, refers to a place between two individual sheep pens where the manure and the straw would be piled up and stored. And because of the natural heat that dissipates from the decomposition of the straw, it became a, a warm place on a cold day for animals to gather and begin to, bell, to bed down. I mean, can you see what he's saying to his son? He's saying, son, you're, you're like a John Deere tractor that never comes out of the barn. But notice what else he says in verse 15. I saw the rest was good and that the land was pleasant. He bowed his shoulder to bear a burden and became a band of slaves. Jacob is warning the descendants of Issachar that if they continue in this direction, their idleness is not going to serve them well. I mean, they will succumb to some sort of slavery in the future if they continue that direction. And that's exactly what did happen. I mean, when Assyria swept down from the north and took over the tribe of Issachar after the reign of Solomon. And then that brings us to the four sons of Jacob's concubines. You know, it was about six years ago that I had the unwelcome opportunity to thoroughly embarrass myself. I was attending my son's graduation, medical school graduation, 
And I heard the announcer say, you know, any parents of these graduates who have their doctoral degree and would like to join their son or daughter on stage along with that son or daughter's mentor could join them in the hooding of their graduate. Well, I thought, did I hear that correctly? They want me to go up on stage? I asked the guy next to me, I said, did you hear that? And he said, that's what I heard. And I thought, well, I'm going to go up there. And so I said, excuse me, and I made my way down the road. i got to go up on stage. I made my way on down the road. And then I made my way down the aisle, and then I made my way all the way down uh, to the bottom floor, and then up on the platform. And it was about that time I, I realized what he really did say. He said, any parent who has their medical doctorate who would like to join their student on stage with their mentor. I had a doctorate, but it wasn't the right kind of doctorate. I was illegitimately up there on stage, and when I came to that conclusion, I bet I turned five shades of red. And I just kind of looked down, and I bent over, and I just kind of backed my way all the way into the curtain and hoped nobody noticed, especially my son. He did, however. And to this day, I mean, when he remembers it, he just goes, oh, dad, 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 what were you thinking? You see, I was illegitimately up on stage. I didn't belong there. And I suspect that's exactly what Jacob is concerned that these next four sons will feel. Like they're illegitimate heirs in the family. I mean, they are sons of concubines. Look at the first one, Dan. Notice what he says, verse 16. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Now, now Jacob wants it crystal clear that the sons of, of uh, Bilhi and Zilpah are legitimate heirs, just like the sons of Leah and Rachel are heirs. I mean, notice how he tells Dan what he does. He says, you shall judge just as one of the tribes of Israel. In other words, the descendants of Dan are going to exercise some kind of justice over all Israel as a legitimate tribe, as a legitimate descendant of Jacob. And all you've got to do is fast forward a couple of hundred years and you discover God raising up a man named Samson. He was from the tribe of Dan, and he used his cunning and creativity to bring about justice for Israel his entire life. I mean, notice how he is, describes that event in verse 17. It says, Dan shall be a serpent by the way, a viper by the path, that bites the horse's heel so that its rider shall fall back. I have waited for your salvation, O Lord. And if you remember your biblical history correctly, it was Samson's cleverness like that of a viper, like that of a serpent that kept the Philistines off balance his entire life. And then comes Gad. He's the first son of the concubine, Zilpah. And to Gad, Jacob says, Gad, a troop shall trample upon him, but he shall triumph at last. Now, it seems like he's telling Gad, you... You're going to be attacked. You're going to be beat up by a band of raiders. I mean, how could that be encouraging to him? But notice he says, but don't worry, you'll eventually see justice. In other words, he's encouraging Gad to hang in there. Don't give up. 
Justice will eventually come. And then to Asher, verse 20, bread from Asher shall be rich, and he shall yield royal dainties. Now, what in the world is a royal dainty? Well, it's a word for a delicacy. He's saying, hey, Asher, your food's going to be rich, and you're going to consume rich delicacies fit for a king. In other words, Asher, your descendants are going to be well off. They're going to live in a fertile land, and they're going to have abundance of rich food. And then to Naphtali, his next son. He says this, verse 21, Naphtali is a deer let loose. He uses beautiful words. Now, now th- this phrase is debated over and over again like no other phrase that Jacob uh, communicates. People are wondering, now, what is he getting at? Exactly what is he saying? And there's some textual problems with the phrase that just complicate it even further. I, I think maybe a better translation would be, Naphtali is a deer set free who bears beautiful fawns. In other words, Jacob is saying, uh, Naphtali, you're going to have a good-looking wife and you're going to have good-looking kids. And Naphtali's probably listening to this going, Woo-hoo! Man, I'm not going to get cursed and I'm going to have a hot wife and I'm not getting beat up like old Gad. This is great. That's what I suspect he's thinking. He's probably even saying it. And then it brings us to Jacob's favorite son, Joseph. Notice what he says in verse 22. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a well. His branches run over the wall. The archers have bitterly grieved him, shot at him, and hated him. But his bow remains remained in strength, and the arms of his hands were made strong. I mean, Dad is telling his favorite son, Joseph, hey, son, you... I hate to tell you this, but your life's going to be hard. There'll be people who will be jealous of what you accomplish. But take courage because you will continue to grow and blossom. And if you remember, it was Joseph who ends up getting the double portion of the first son's blessing when Reuben ends up uh, forfeiting that, as we covered it a few chapters ago. But, But it's not the double portion that causes Joseph to stand out against his brothers. I want you to notice to whom Jacob attributes Joseph's success in the rest of the verse, verse 24. By the hands of Almighty God of Jacob, from there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel, by the God of your father who will help you, and by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lie beneath, blessings of the breast of the womb. I mean, did you see it five times? He attributes Joseph's bright future to God. Notice, oh, and not only that, he also personalizes God by saying he is also my God. I mean, he he says his success will come by the hand of the almighty God of Jacob. He's saying, by my God. And then he attributes his fortune to the shepherd, the the stone or rock of Israel. Remember, his name given to, to Jacob by God was Israel. He's again saying, and this is from my God. And then he goes on and says, by the God of your father, my God. And finally, by the Almighty, five different times, he credits God for Joseph's accomplishments. 
Now, as you read that, you need to know that's a significant departure from the Jacob we've come to know as you've read the book of Genesis. Remember, he was a guy who wrestled with God, who tried to live independent of what God wanted. He has been at odds with God his entire life. And now, at the end of his life, he's attributing success to the God he's tried to avoid. And then, finally, Jacob comes to his youngest son, Benjamin, in verse 27. He says, Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning he shall devour the prey, and at night he shall divide the spoils. My dad is saying to his youngest son, Hey, Benjamin, you're a tough kid. Your your whole family is going to be like the Marines. I mean, they're going to be tough. I mean, it's a way of a dad saying you are a man's man. And as you look at the history of the tribe of Benjamin... I mean, even though they were the smallest of all the tribes, the greatest number of mighty warriors comes from this very tribe. Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. Jonathan, his son, uh, who with his armor bearer ended up climbing up a cliff and engaging an entire garrison of Philistines by himself, single-handedly, is from the tribe of Benjamin. Many of David's mighty warriors came from that tribe. In fact, you come all the way to the New Testament and you have Saul, who became known as Paul, coming from the tribe of Benjamin. I mean, what a great blessing to speak over your son. You're a man's man. Now, having addressed all of his sons, what Jacob does now, he dressed them individually. He wants to address them as a whole. And what he says next is remarkable. Look at verse 29. And then he said to them, I'll be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought from Ephraim the Hittite as a possession for a burial place. And there they buried Abraham and Sarah and his wife. And there they buried Isaac and Rebekah and his wife. And there I buried Leah, the field and the cave, that's there, were purchased from the sons of Heath. Did you see it? You may have just zipped right by it. If you don't pay close attention, you'll miss it. Where does Jacob want to be buried? And who does he want to be buried with? I'm telling you, if this was a Hollywood movie, it would end something like this. And so Jacob chose to be buried Next to the woman, the only woman he loved in life, his second wife, Rachel, and they went off into eternity holding hands. That's the way Hollywood would have written the script. And you would have listened to that and gone, oh, that just feels so good. But he doesn't do that, does he? Instead of asking to be buried with Rachel, I mean, do you remember who Rachel was? Rachel was his second wife. I mean, she gave birth to two sons. The last son, Benjamin, uh, when she gave birth, she died in childbirth on her way back from Bethel, and she had to be buried in Ephrath, outside of the promised land. And so instead of saying, I want to be buried with Rachel, Jacob says, I want you to bury me in the cave at Machpelah, where Abraham, Isaac, and Leah, the woman I never loved, is buried. I mean, can you, do you get a picture of what's going on here in the text? 
I mean, it's unlike anything else in the Bible. Jacob's death and eventual burial is presented as an indication that he was a man who finished strong. By requesting to be buried with Leah, his true wife, his first wife. Yeah, I know he didn't love her. Yeah, I know he was tricked into marrying her. But God never intended Jacob to marry two women, let alone two women and two concubines. It was his first wife and was supposed to be his only wife, even though he was tricked into marrying her. And so in saying, I want to be buried next to Leah, he's saying, boys, boys, I don't want you to miss this. I want to be buried in the land that I have been promised by God Almighty. I want to be buried there. Can't you see, guys? I'm leaning against God. I want to be buried in this land of promise with the real woman that I was that I married. And I want you to know this is where the, your descendants are going to live. And this is the place the blessings will be rained down on our family forever. I mean, if you came into the movie late, you're going to miss the whole point. I mean, if you just start reading in chapter 49, you're thinking, you know, this is a chapter about the the 12 individual blessings to 12 individual sons. But it's not about that at all. It's about a man who does bless his 12 sons who finished strong, who finished well. You see, Jacob finished strong even though he didn't live strong. Jacob was not a good man. Well, he was born into a believing family, that's true. And he had a real-life, undeniable experience with God at an early age. In fact, in chapter 25, we're told that God chose him before he was even born. And then God shows that he chose him over his older brother Esau to get the inheritance of the family. I mean, God promised early on to do great things with him and through him and for him. It's undeniable. Jacob is a man blessed by God. But Jacob is not a good man. I mean, think back on your history. He was devious and dishonest, deceitful. He was weak and willful. He wasn't a good father. He wasn't a good leader of his family. I mean, he married four different women when he was supposed to just marry one. And he played favorites in his family, of which, if God hadn't intervened, would have destroyed his family completely. And in his old age, he's a foolish, miserable, self-pitying old man. And for the most part, for all of his life, he tried to manipulate God's blessings his way rather than resting in God bringing the blessings to him God's way. You see, Jacob is on his deathbed here, and the Scripture tells us he's blind. But he has never seen more clearly than he sees right now. He's able to see at the end of life that God has been faithful to him throughout his life, even though he hasn't been faithful to God. He sees, when he sees that, he starts leaning into God and what God promised. I mean, that's why so much attention is focused, I mean, 73 verses on his death and burial. I mean, this story shows that with God, you can finish strong even if you haven't lived strong. Now, that's amazing. But finishing strong doesn't mean finish, finishing unblemished. It doesn't mean finishing perfect. I mean, there's so many guys, people in the Bible who are just like us. 
I mean, some have finished strong that previously were involved in sexual immorality. And some who have finished strong have been considered failures at midlife. I mean, they've found themselves stuck in bitter circumstances. I mean, frustrated by situations of their own making. Some who have finished strong have overcome personal failures, major setbacks, by embracing the grace of God and living by that grace from that point forward. See, no matter what you have done in your past because of the grace of God, you can finish strong even if you haven't lived strong. Now, I'm not advocating living any way you want. And then just before you die, I mean, stop resisting and wrestling with God so you can finish strong. I mean, do you think Jacob would commend that life to us if he were here this morning? I don't think so. Remember what he said to Pharaoh when Pharaoh asked him about his life. He said this, few and evil have been the days of my life. In other words, this philosophy of life has brought me nothing but misery. I mean, sometimes we get so caught up in our smaller stories with our false gods bound up in our addictions, our self-centeredness, our take-it-for-granted unbelief that we can't see clearly. But God can. And God does His best work at redeeming broken things, things we break. See, because of the grace of God, you can finish strong even if you haven't lived strong. But also, by the grace of God, you can live strong and you can finish strong. I mean, living strong and finishing strong is the same thing, but living strong is just the opposite of what you naturally think. I mean, living strong doesn't mean uh, trying harder, relying on your own strength, uh, living by your wits, striving trying harder and harder. I mean, that's the way Jacob lived his entire life. Living strong means living in dependence upon God's wisdom and protection. It means leaning into God's ability to care and guide and provide for you. When you live consistently like that, you'll finish strong. Not because of what you do, but because of what God ends up doing in you. Finishing strong means relying on God. It means interpreting the circumstances of your smaller story through the lens of God's abiding love and protection. That no matter what circumstances enter your life, it's reminding yourself that there is a larger story. A story of what God is doing around you. Realizing that There's really no such thing as normal life. There's just life. Life lived in the adventure of God's bigger story. So that one day they might write on your tombstone, finished strong. Father, thank you for this story of Joseph and how it overlaps with Jacob. And how we see more of ourselves in Jacob than we do Joseph. And the encouragement of this, that by your grace, even if we haven't lived strong, we can finish strong. And may that be the mark written over our lives here at Horizon. That we were real and we were honest, but we finished strong, leaning in to you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, I want to thank you for coming, and by the way, if you came prepared to give, 
offering boxes are out in the hall. And if you're new here at Horizon or have any questions about what's going on here, I want to invite you down to the hearth room, third door on the left. We would love to meet you and engage with you down there. So we'll see you back next week. Enjoy the rest of this wonderful day.